Well, happy Easter, everyone. We're going to be in John chapter 20 today, as you may have guessed from uh, our reading. And interestingly, uh, you probably never thought about this. The author of the book of John is actually a disciple of Jesus by the name of John. But interestingly, he doesn't call himself by that name in this book. John simply refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loves. Sounds a little presumptuous, doesn't it? I don't even need a name. I'm the disciple that, you know, Jesus loves. You know, I'm that guy, right? Uh, listen, we're going to be looking at two events uh, that occurred on the day that Jesus' body went missing. The first one happened in the morning. We're not going to spend very much time in this one. We're just going to make a couple of observations. But then the second one where we're going to spend most of our time happened later that night. So here's the morning version uh, when John and Peter first discover that the tomb is empty. Let's read what happened. So she, that would be Mary Magdalene, she'd already gone to the tomb earlier in the, in the morning, went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, here it is, the one that Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Now, I want you to note a resurrection was not on anybody's radar. She just assumes the body's been moved or that the body has been taken. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. And this is a line that just leapt out at me this week. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. This is such a guy thing. Guys can make a competition out of anything, right? And John wants the whole world to know that he won that foot race with Peter, that he got there first. And so for eternity, People will know that John was faster than Peter. So not only is John the disciple that Jesus loves, he's also the disciple formerly known as the Flash. Just saying. <laughs> Listen, things like this, statements like this are one of the reasons I know the Bible is true and factual because you can't make up stuff like this. In fact, think about this. If John had lied about that race, with Peter, wouldn't Peter have called him out on him on it? Sure he would have. Yo, yo, John, you know, dude, like that sounded just like Peter, right? Like, you know, that didn't really happen. I'll race you right now. You know, this is what guys do. So that morning they find an empty tomb. They don't know what happened. They're confused. So now fast forward to the evening. You've got 11, you've got all the disciples huddled together in a room and they're confused, they're disappointed, and they are very, very afraid. Because the Jesus that they thought was going to reign and rule as the Messiah, as far as they knew, he was dead and buried. The king they thought they knew was gone, and so was his body. And so they were very, very concerned that they would end up just like their rabbi, that they too would be imprisoned, that they would be tortured and even killed. In fact, I want to reread these verses that, uh, that Connor read a moment ago, and then we're just going to walk our way through them and make some observations together. But let's reread them first. When it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So again, let's just make some observations together because it's in their story that we're going to see ourselves. And to do that, I want to talk about the middle, the middle So I want us to think about an airplane for just a minute. You know, when you get on an airplane, there are two kinds of people. Actually, there are three kinds of people in the world, but the first kind of person doesn't get on an airplane to begin with. Any of those in the room? Yeah, a few of you, right? But on an airplane, there really are only two kinds of people. There are aisle seat people, right? And then there are window seat people. We're talking about an airplane. How many, how many aisle seat people do we have in the room this morning? How about window seat people? Yeah, this is so amazing. All three services, the biggest group by far, window seat people. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was on an airplane. I didn't get assigned the aisle seat. I didn't get assigned the window seat. You know what seat I got assigned? I got assigned the seat Right here in the middle. See, nobody likes the middle seat, right? Nobody does. The middle is uncomfortable. The middle is hard, right? We feel stuck when we're in the middle. Nobody likes to be in the middle of anything, right? And to make matters worse, I was sandwiched between two guys that looked a lot more like Pat than they did Brandon. And I just want to say, for the purposes of this illustration, I'm way more fond of Brandon than I am Pat right now. He's looking at me, isn't he? Awkward. All right, yeah. So thank you, men. Will you guys give a hand to these guys for being willing to... So there are window seat people and there are aisle seat people, but nobody wants the middle seat. That's the one we all dread, whether we're on a plane, a train, or an automobile, right? That's the seat that we're the most uncomfortable with. We don't like the middle. Why? Well, I think it's because in the middle, to use a word, we feel stuck, right? When we're in the middle of something, uh, yeah, we're just stuck. And that's true in a seat, and it's also true in a situation, You know, when you're in a project, right, when you're trying to do something, the beginning, it's really exciting. The ending is a celebration. It's in the middle where we get bogged down and we want to quit. It's in the middle when everything gets difficult. I mean, in the middle, we feel like we're equally far from the beginning as we are from the end. And so it's in the middle when it's most tempting to give up. How many of you have ever given up on a project or quit in the middle of something? The rest of you are not being truthful, right? So let's say, for example, you're going to clean out your garage. You know, you pull everything out into the driveway. We do this almost every year, and every year it fills right back up. So in our house, we have to do this every year. But at a certain point, at least me, my wife's a trooper. She wants to go on, but not me. At a certain point, I just go, you know what, honey, let's just shove it all back in. 
I mean, listen, I, I won't tell if you don't tell, right? I, let's, just, let's just pretend it isn't there. We'll park the cars in the driveway. Look, the, the garage is not for our cars anyway. It's for our stuff. The driveway is what is for our cars. And I know some of you kind of feel the same way, right? Well, listen, it's in the middle, friends, that our fears can overwhelm and overtake us. And this was true for Jesus' disciples. Think about their situation. They felt stuck. They were in the middle of something they couldn't get out of. They couldn't see a way out. And Jesus showed up right in the middle, right in the middle, right in their midst, right in their midst. And I love what the text says. It says they were all in a room with the doors locked. I guess you could say that the disciples had a lot in common with some of us today, right? Because a lot of us, we feel stuck either in the room that we in or a situation that we're in. And the disciples wanted to give up. The doors are locked. In fact, the original language is way more emphatic. It says uh, the, the original language would indicate the doors were locked and barred. Now, why would they do that? Well, because they were terrified. I mean, they had personally witnessed what had happened to Jesus. They saw him arrested. They saw him tortured. They saw him crucified. And now his body was missing. So they're not just terrified, they're confused. And uh, they're, they're just heart sick because they thought they were part of a movement that was going to change the world and that was going to rescue Israel from Roman tyranny. And so because of that, they expected to hear a knock on the door at any, any minute. And listen, Jesus shows up right in the middle of all that fear, all that anxiety. And when Jesus shows up, you know what his presence always brings with it? It always brings a calm. It always brings a calm. In fact, I love how the J.B. Phillips translates verse 19. It says that all this happened in the evening when it was dark outside. Anybody ever notice you get to the end of a day? And how many of you just by the time you get to the end of the day, you're just drop dead tired? Isn't it true that when you get to the end of the day, you're a lot more prone to discouragement. You're a lot more prone to just weariness, you know, this desire to give up. Well, this is exactly where the disciples were, right? They were locked in this room. They'd been through a, a nightmarish day, a day that few of us could even comprehend. And they're in there fearing for their life. See, everything in their life has been magnified by their exhaustion and the darkness around them. And I really believe this is a word from God for some of you. This could even be a word, of God, a word from God for our country. See, the Bible says that Jesus showed up right in the middle. And what was the outcome of that? Well, so let's just kind of walk through these verses and see what happens when Jesus shows up in the middle of a situation. The first thing is we see that the disciples were just, they were just calmed by his presence, all right? So we see here that Jesus is a king who calms. When Jesus shows up, he brings calm with him. I mean, he shows up in the middle of his disciples and his presence made all the difference. And I'll tell you how, they went into that room afraid. They came out of that room triumphant. 
They went into that room with their hoodies on. They came out of that room with their heads up. They went into that room anxious and overwhelmed. They came out of that room with peace and calm. They went into that room miserable. They marched out of there joyful. Why? Because Jesus showed up in the middle. And he always shows up in the middle. This is what the calming influence of his presence does. And here's the amazing thing about Easter. The resurrection of Jesus means that his presence presence isn't just available to the disciples. It's available to you and it's available to me. The resurrection means he's here now. He is in the room. And then secondly, we see in this story that not only were they calmed by his presence, but they were, they were comforted by his words. Jesus didn't just show up, he spoke. And what he spoke was absolutely amazing. What he said was, peace be with you. So he didn't just show up. He showed up to bring not just calm, but also peace with him. And I want you to notice something. He's giving them peace. Their circumstances haven't changed. They are still very much in danger. All of them, except for John, are going to go on to die excruciating death. So all of their great fears are going to still come to pass, but they, they have no reason to fear it anymore. See, what, they're faced, what they were facing and up against, that didn't change. But uh, his words brought them comfort. And it wasn't just the kind of comfort that, you know, we feel when life is good or, you know, we're, we're, our circumstances have changed. No, this was way deeper. Jesus actually spoke shalom over his disciples. That's the word, shalom. And shalom represented far more than just peace. It represented a wholeness, a spiritual peace and rest derived from pressing into the knowledge that God loves you and wants good things for your life. Shalom means harmony, complete harmony with God. Think how often you felt guilt and shame in God's presence. No more. When shalom peace is in the room, all that goes away. Shalom peace means not only harmony with God, it also means harmony with other people. I want you to think about how much anxiety and worry and stress you carry around because you've become crossways with somebody or you've become alienated with somebody or you had an argument with somebody. Well, shalom peace eliminates that. It all goes away. There is complete harmony between you and God and you and other human beings. And that is the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring. This is amazing. And we can have that wash over us. And that can allow us to know that not only is he with us, but that he is for us and wants to give us every good thing, every good thing. And listen, this is just a word that some of you need to hear today. God is for you. God longs to bless you. He demonstrated his love for you by sending his son to die in your place on a cross. You don't have to wonder about the love of God for you. Jesus already demonstrated that. He has already proven that he loves you. And then we find too, I mean, he just speaks, right? Shalom. That as we regularly anchor our hearts to his word, we're able to find shelter in a storm. 
Now listen, I didn't say he gives shelter at the end of the storm or when the storm is over. No, he's a God who gives shelter right in the middle of the storm. And I love that because remember, their circumstances didn't change. And this is why we say so often around here that you need to be in God's word every single day. You know why? Because Jesus longs to speak to you. He longs to speak into your life. He longs to speak into your circumstances. He longs to speak into your disappointments. He longs to speak into your discouragement. He longs to speak into your worry and your anxiety. In fact, for the next three weeks, we are just going to marinate. We're just going to beg in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount about worry. You know why we're going to spend three weeks talking about worry? Because it's one of the worry and anxiety are one of the biggest problems of our day. So I just say, look, come back because we're going we're gonna to just soak in Jesus' words about worry. And then the next observation, you know, the text tells us that Jesus showed him his hands and his side. So Jesus, they were, so what they were done was they, they were literally convinced by his wounds. And what we see here is that Jesus is a king who bleeds. He bleeds. He just gives himself away. And when they saw his wounds, they were convinced that he was the person they saw die on the cross. And it was in that moment that they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. His resurrection proved that. And I want you to think about the resurrection for a minute. One of our greatest fears as human beings is of death, right? One of our greatest fears is of the grave. One of our greatest fears is that we might lose someone who is near and dear to us, someone that we love. But Jesus is saying, look, by showing them his wounds, he's saying, look, I came through from the other side and I'm just the first one. I'm gonna make it possible for all of you to do that as well. And so by showing them his wounds, his hands, his side, Jesus is saying, there is no need for death anymore. I've got that covered. I have conquered death. I've done what nobody else could do. See, they were convinced by his wounds, but the comfort ran much deeper than even that. Because let me tell you this, friends, the last time they saw those wounds, those wounds represented the worst thing they had ever seen happen in their entire life. They saw the best man they ever knew suffer unjustly and unrightly before God. They had had to watch those happen. Those wounds were absolutely devastating. But now those wounds had been turned upside down. Now they're not the worst thing that could have ever happened. They're the best thing that could have ever happened because those wounds mean that Jesus was alive and well and resurrected, that he is alive in spite of those wounds. And now listen to me, some of you in the room, you have wounds. In fact, let's be honest, all of us in the room, we have wounds. I mean, you may not be able to see them. They may not be visible. They may not be on your hands or on your side, but every single one of us knows what it's like to have wounds. And um, here's what the thing, you need, to, you need to hear this. Jesus 
can change those wounds. He can bring healing to those wounds in your life. He can transform what you think right now is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. He can bring good and beauty out of that. Because if he can bring good out of the cross, friends, then he can bring good out of anything. Anything, any situation in your life and mine. But here's the thing. You have to trust him with your wounds. You have to offer him your wounds. You have to acknowledge, hey, you know, I'm hurting. I need you. And you can give Jesus your wounds, your past, because nobody knows better than Jesus what it's like to have wounds. Nobody And something else I want you to notice about his wounds. By showing them his wounds, his focus is on what he has done, not on what they have done. He didn't didn't show up in a classroom and go, hey, what's your memory verse for the week? You know, um, he he didn't go, hey, you guys keeping my commandments? You being good? You being sweet? You being nice? No. He came into that room right in the middle and he says, I want you to look what I did for you. I want you to look what I went through for you. And so in doing that, he's saying, look, if you want to begin a relationship with me, it's any relationship with me is going to be ba- built and based on what I have done for you, not simply what you can do for me. And so he would just say, look, I want you to take confidence in me. I want you to take confidence in these wounds because they are for you. And then number four, Jesus calls them to his mission. And this is so beautiful. Jesus is a king who calls people. He commissions people. He gave them a mission. He gave them purpose and meaning. And the mission, of course, was as the Father has sent me, so I also sent you. And it's so interesting. He's not using that word send like, hey, I'm going to send you on an errand. It's actually a technical word. It's like, hey, I'm going to send you on an official mission from the embassy. You are now my ambassadors. You know, When I was growing up, there was a cheesy movie that came out. Some of you may have seen it. It was called The Blues Brothers. Anybody remember The Blues Brothers? Some of us wish we could forget, right? Well, the gag line for the whole movie was that these two characters, these two goofballs, these two losers actually believed that they were on a mission from God. And so that's what they would say. They would say, you know, we're on a mission from God. I didn't do that very well. They did it way better than I just did it. But nonetheless, they believe that. Well, according to Jesus, so are you. And so am I. Jesus offers purpose and meaning. He offers direction. And what he was reminding the disciples of was their lives weren't just random. Their lives were intentional and purposeful. And he would remind you and I of exactly the same thing. If you are a follower of Jesus and you are in the room this morning, you are on a diplomatic mission. Your kingdom is heaven and you now have a sort of diplomatic immunity from some of the ways that this world operates and you get to live on a higher level. This means you get to live above the storm. This means you get to soar on wings like an 
an eagle. And it also means that in all that you do, you are sent there. You're not just hanging out waiting for something better to do. Wherever you work, you didn't just take a job in that place. You were sent there. Parents, mom, dad, you were sent into your homes. You were entrusted with the children you have been given by the maker of heaven and earth. Your life is not random. You are not just hanging out, passing time. You are sent, every one of us. And listen, when men and women recognize that they've been commissioned, that they're Christ's ambassadors, there is this sense, there's a joy. In fact, that's what we were told the disciples felt. They felt overjoyed at that. And I'll tell you why. Because when you recognize that you're sent, you recognize that in every minute you are in the sweet spot of the universe, that you are doing exactly, you are exactly where God wants you to be doing the very thing he wants you to do. And I can tell you from experience, there is great, great joy in knowing that and surrendering to that. And then finally, one last thing. We see that they were claimed by Jesus' spirit, claimed by the Holy Spirit. And I love this because what we learn here is that Jesus is a king that gives away power. He doesn't take it for himself. He gives it away. That's the purpose. That's the point of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus didn't just speak peace as he sent them. He breathed on them. And as he breathed on them, he said, I want you to receive the spirit now listen, this is the game changer right here. This could be the game changer for you this morning. Because when the Spirit takes up residence in a human being, he provides that human being with supernatural power and supernatural ability, ability well beyond themselves, a strength beyond your strength, a help beyond just your help, a power beyond just your willpower. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the same power that Jesus, here's the good news. The same power, the same spirit that Jesus offered those disciples huddled together in that little room would offer you, he'd offer you the same spirit in a slightly larger room. He would breathe life into you this morning. And here's the incredible thing. Here's what this means. It means that whatever you're dealing with, whatever is front and center in your life, you don't have to deal with that alone. Jesus wants to give you his spirit. And there's some amazing words used to describe the spirit in the Bible. Words like counselor, words like comforter. And that's the kind of spirit that Jesus would want to give you. And I want you to notice something else. As, as he breathed on them, that we're told that he gave them the Holy Spirit. God's breath in the Bible is always associated with life. Always. So it's no mistake. The same exact word is used in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 when it says that in creation, God formed man right out of the dust of the earth and then he breathed into his nostrils. And then we're told that man became a living being alive by the breath of God. Now listen, 
I don't know what you need strength for today. I don't know what you need comfort for today. I don't know what the circumstances are that you're facing. But here's what I do know. Jesus wants to breathe new life into you today. He wants to give you his strength. He wants to give you his spirit so that whatever that is, you don't have to go through that or endure that in your own strength. And I want to remind you why Jesus is able to show up in the middle of something. It's because he died in the middle of something. He died right between two criminals, right in the middle. And so therefore, he's able to show up in the middle by the authority of his resurrection. And I just want you to hear me say that no matter what you're feeling or what your emotional state is like today, I just want to speak life over you. I want to speak comfort over you in the name of Jesus. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray with me because some of you are here and you recognize maybe for the first time ever, I need a relationship like that. I need, I need to invest in my relationship with Jesus. And here's why this is so important. Because I believe that right now, Jesus is in the room, this room. Fear can't keep him out, locked doors can't keep him out, anxiety can't keep him out. Jesus is there, here, in the room, wanting to breathe new life into you, wanting to pour out his spirit into your heart, mind, and life. And he can do that. And he's going to do that for some of you hopefully for many of you. And so first, I want to pray for you. And then I want to invite some of you, those who feel kind of compelled to, to pray with me. So first, I'm going to pray though, okay? I'm going to pray for you. Father, I pray a fresh breath from heaven. I pray a sense of comfort and calm because of your presence, because of your power, because of your peace because of your wounds. And God, we thank you that we're not just here this morning. We were sent. We're not just passing time. We are your ambassadors. And so God, would you help these men and women to see this, not as a cross to bear, but as a great opportunity to be used by you to change lives and to ripple out into eternity. And so, God, I also just want to pray right now for those who've never trusted in you for salvation. God, I want to pray for those that are still focused on trying to be kind, trying to be nice, in the hope that maybe one day they'll be good enough and you'll accept them. And if that's you today, I'm praying that God will open your eyes to what he has done for you. He was wounded for you. He died on a cross for you. He was resurrected to claim you. Have you received that? Have you received his spirit into your heart as a new believer to be born again today, this moment, because of Jesus? Well, if not, friends, today's the day. Now is the time. Listen to me. God loves you. He sees you. He is right where you are, knocking on the door of your heart. And I believe for many, this is your moment. This is your day to become a follower of Jesus. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a prayer. 
And if you're ready to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you're ready to embrace him like no other king, then I want you to pray this prayer with me. And by the way, maybe you've never prayed this prayer, and that's awesome. But, you know, maybe you kind of grew up with this message. You know, but you, you wandered away in your adulthood. You strayed, you fell, you, you got distracted, you chased after false gods and maybe even false assurances. And so in this moment, I want to remind you that no matter what is behind you, that God can and will save you and come into your life. And he wants to make you new. So if you would just speak these words with me from your heart. Dear God, you can, you can say them out loud or you can say them with your inside voice. doesn't matter. What matters is that your heart is wrapped up in the words. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner and I can't fix myself. But I believe you can. Would you come into my heart? Would you come into my mind? My heart and mind are open to you. Come into my heart and make me new. I give myself to you. I trust in your wounds, your sacrifice for me, for the forgiveness of my sin. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Hey, so uh, I'm sure that dozens of you um, prayed that prayer for the first time, but there are others of you, maybe that you hesitated and you know, something's kind of holding you back. You're not even sure what it is. You're not even sure you can articulate it. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to take a minute and just kind of worship around this invitation that I just talked about. And so our worship team's just gonna sing a, a song that's really more than a song, it's an invitation. And we're just gonna worship in that. And so what I wanna tell you is that if at any time during that invitation, all you have to do is right where you stand, just bow your head and pray a prayer similar to the one that I pray, because these are beautiful, beautiful words that we're about to sing together. So would you stand and let's sing about this glorious invitation that, that stands before all of us.